Beloved, as we continue to worship God together, let us rejoice that He has opened our deaf ears to hear His voice. What a gracious gift it is to be able to read Scripture and understand it by the power of His Spirit at work within us. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, we have God's Word. These are not words of human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit, so that we might put on the mind of Christ Himself, so that we might know Him and lay hold of eternal life to which we have been called. Therefore, be careful how you listen this afternoon. Pray that the Lord may speak to you, convict you, and transform you as you hear His Word. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 to 23. This is the Word of the Lord. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, things that you have decreed before the ages for our glory. Give your people wisdom and understanding that we might know how to discern truth from error in a world that seeks to conform us to its godless ways. May we flee from all self-sufficiency and be willing to count all things as loss for the joy of knowing and following our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've heard, but the city of Sharjah has a new iconic cultural landmark. It's called the House of Wisdom. It's located near University City, and this center was commissioned to be a modern knowledge hub for the 21st century. A high-tech library, if you will, where anyone can come and seek to be enriched in knowledge. This library is currently home to 305,000 books, of which 200,000 are in the digital format and 11,000 books in various other languages. Now, compared to the Library of Congress in the United States, or the British Library in London, or even the Shanghai Library in Shanghai, China, the House of Wisdom is quite small. 
and yet it boasts of great things. For one, the house of wisdom aims to dispense knowledge to all members of society with the hope that they will become progressive and be able to live at peace with one another or become catalysts of a harmonious coexistence, to use their own words. But friends, here's what you should find interesting about the library itself. The library is great. You can go and visit. But what's interesting is its name, the House of Wisdom. You see, the name of the center reveals one of our most cherished delusions about the state of human beings. And that is this, that wisdom is a natural product of our acquisition of information and learning and reflection and experience. The late John Webster, a British theologian, said this, we're often tempted to think that wisdom just grows with age, that acquiring wisdom is a matter of human maturing. Or again, sometimes we're tempted to believe that we can make ourselves wise, that if we practice hard and often enough, if we build the right virtues and habits into our lives, if we work at it, we can somehow cultivate wisdom. But to this kind of wisdom, this wisdom that we can nurture and grow, the Word of God says a pretty firm no. It says no because the whole business of acquiring wisdom out of our own resources is folly. And indeed, worse than folly, says Webster, because it is a repetition of the very core of human sin. For at the heart of sin is a refusal to be instructed by God. Webster is right. This was at the heart of the rebellion in the garden, wasn't it? This refusal that we don't need God's instruction to discern what is good and evil. We can figure that out on our own and trust in our own reason. And Scripture calls that being wise in our own eyes. And this is why Paul tells the Corinthians in this letter that this kind of wisdom stands under God's judgment. The only way a person can become truly wise is by the grace of God as He unites us to the person of His Son. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. You see, wisdom is not a human accomplishment. It's a gift of grace. It's not something that we can earn or acquire in a library, but it's a gift that God in Christ, through His Spirit, gives us when we humbly submit to His Word. Friends, you and I cannot become wise apart from a saving relationship with God, apart from receiving His Spirit and being instructed by Him. Wisdom is not a thing. It's not a basket of fruit that God gives you. So it's not like you, you pray and ask God for wisdom and, and God says, here, take this. It's not a basket of fruit that now you have it, it's in your possession, and God no longer has it in His possession because He gave it to you. No, we shouldn't think about wisdom in that way. God enables you to be wise 
in a saving relationship with him and not apart from him. Wisdom is gained by union and communion with the triune God. As you become like him, by renewing your mind according to his word, as you think his thoughts after him. You begin to become wise by first realizing that you are not. By first realizing that he alone is the wise one. And that you are a creature and that you need him to make sense of who you are and the world you live in. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And friends, this is why God has given his blood-bought church the gift of leaders for the task of building up his people through his word so that we can walk in wisdom. Now, the reason that there was trouble at the church in Corinth was because the Corinthians were not viewing the true nature of Christian leadership in the light of God's wisdom, but their own. Corinthian culture greatly valued reputation and power and eloquence, and some of the members at this church began to use those values to size up their leaders, and this led to divisions in the church. So... Some followed one leader based on his eloquence. Others followed someone else because they had been baptized by that person. Others followed yet another because of his reputation and importance. And each group thought that they belonged to their leader. And they thought that they were being wise in their thinking. And so Paul in this chapter not only rebukes them for being immature, but he also points out that by allowing cultural wisdom to instruct them, they had not only forgotten the way of the cross, but they were building up the church with shoddy materials. And some people who were set in their ways were actually destroying the church. And so as Paul continues to impart true wisdom through his words, as he continues to teach the Corinthians to, to think Christianly about themselves and their leaders... I think there are, there are a couple of things that we can learn from this passage. Three things we can learn in order to grow in discernment. Number one, realize that we are prone to deception. We are prone to deception. Number two, we must be willing to look foolish in the eyes of the world. We must be willing to look foolish in the eyes of the world. And number three... We must remember our corporate identity in Christ. Remember that you're prone to deception. Remember your corporate identity in Christ. And remember that you must be willing to look like a fool in the eyes of the world. But first, let's think about how we're prone to deception. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself, says Paul. Friends, this is a real temptation for every believer. It certainly was for the Corinthians. They thought they were doing the right thing and being wise when in fact they were deceived. Cultural thinking can often be like that. What society finds impressive can have a tremendous conforming power. And you've all experienced this. You know, you think about this. Your kids come home from school and they want the latest model of Nike shoes or whatever else is the craze today. 
and they won't let up. Why do they want it so badly? Well, because everybody else has them. It's peer pressure from their own subculture. Conform or be left out. Conform or you will be viewed as a prehistoric idiot with no class. Who wants to be that? Or think about this. You hear that all your successful friends from the Philippines are building houses back home. And here you are, struggling to make ends meet. You can't take the pressure anymore, so you go out and you take another loan and you buy land. Why? Cultural expectations. Cultural strongholds. Because you don't want to go back on your vacation and hear your friends say, what a loser, you've been there for 20 years in the UAE, and you still don't have a house? Who wants to hear that? Or take the Corinthians, for example. Hey, who's your leader? Tell me about your pastor. Who, that guy? I can't even tell him apart from the rest of the crowd. And now the Corinthians are thinking, oh, I need to follow someone who's important. Someone who has impressive credentials. And Paul says, you've lapsed into cultural thinking. And your building materials are garbage. Brothers, cultural ideas have tremendous persuasive power because, listen carefully, ideas are not spiritually neutral, not in a fallen world. When you trust in values or ideas or goals that the world constantly dishes out, and these may look different from place to place and from generation to generation, but if they're not informed by Scripture, they are not neutral. Remember what James says, James 3.15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Brothers and sisters, there are invisible, demonic forces at play in the world, and there is a battle going on for your soul every day. You need to fight in order to be faithful. Be on guard, be watchful, don't be deceived. This is an alarm that Paul raises throughout this letter. He raises it for people who dismiss his word, the words of Scripture, and turn to their own wisdom. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest you fall. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now certainly a congregation may think culturally and not Christianly about leadership, but friends, there are also many other ways that we can be deceived. If you come from a culture where it's shameful to admit fault or confess sin, and you're in a congregation where that never happens, that is never done, then you're building the church with the materials of cultural wisdom. And there's nothing Christ-exalting or God-honoring about that. 
Because 1 John 1.9 calls us to confess our sins. James 5.16 calls us to confess our sins to one another. And if you decide to do what is culturally comfortable to you and think that that is absolutely normal and that you are being wise, Paul says you're deceiving yourself. Friends, sometimes when you come face to face with things that God calls you to do and you find that strange and uncomfortable, it's not because God's word is not practical or culturally ir irrelevant. It's because we are infected with worldliness. Worldliness. David Wells once wrote, Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective which displaces God and His truth from the world and which makes, listen carefully, which makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness makes sin look normal and feel normal and righteousness seems strange. Worldliness makes sin look normal and righteousness seems strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Or to put it very plainly, if God calls you to do something in His Word and it seems culturally unfamiliar, unimpressive, unrealistic, and odd, you're the problem, not Him. You're not the wise one. He is. And here's what you need to do to correct such wrong-headed thinking. It brings us to our second point. Paul says, become a fool. Become a fool. Look foolish in the eyes of the world. Look at verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul says, if you think you have it all figured out, that you are wise in this age, meaning wise in the eyes of the world, then here's what you need to do to remedy that situation, to honor Christ, to build up the church rightly. Become a fool, he says. A fool in the eyes of the world, so that you may become truly wise. You know, Paul is not saying become an idiot for the sake of becoming an idiot. No, rather he's saying, return to the way of the cross. Repent and return to the scriptures. Return to the kind of thinking and values and behavior that is consistent with the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. It is a wisdom that the Jews find scandalous and the Gentiles, the Greeks, find foolish. Friends, it is a wisdom that is divinely designed to be paradoxical. You know what a paradox is. A paradox is a seemingly self-contradictory statement which runs contrary to the expectations of the world. It goes against common sense. And we see this throughout Scripture, don't we? 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Matthew 23, verse 12 Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 20, 26 to 27. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Luke 9, 24, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Think about 1 Timothy 6, 18 to 19. We just looked at that verse last Monday. The believing rich are to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Giving away, being generous is storing up. Why is it better? Why is it better to become a fool in the eyes of the world? How could that possibly be a good thing for a Christian? Willingly become a fool in the eyes of the world. I mean, that is committing social suicide. That's what it is. You're committing social suicide. You're deliberately choosing not to value what the world values. Choosing not to prioritize what your culture prioritizes. Choosing not to love and chase after what seems acceptable and cool to love and chase after. That's being a fool. It looks like Jesus on the cross. Foolish. Weak. Scandalous. How could that possibly build up the church? Oh, wait. That is what builds up the church, isn't it? That's what Paul has been saying all along. To embrace the gospel and scripture is to embrace the one who was the ultimate fool in the eyes of the world. And so Paul tells us what he's been saying all along, what the Corinthians have forgotten. Look at verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Friends, God doesn't have mixed feelings about the wisdom of the world. He's not ambivalent about it. 1 Corinthians 1.19 I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, says God. Verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Friends, in order to become truly wise, you must be willing to take God's side and not be enamored by the very thing God has condemned. If you are impressed and persuaded and enamored and captivated and entertained with the very thing God has condemned, then that, dear friends, is the very definition of wickedness and evil. You make yourself out to be an enemy of God. And what does James tell us? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And yet we know this, don't we? through what the world considers foolish, through the cross of Jesus Christ, we who were once enemies have now been saved and reconciled to God. We have been forgiven of our sins because Christ was crucified for our sins and He rose from the dead for our justification. We have been forgiven. We have been given new life and we have entered into communion with our Maker. Why would you want to return to the wisdom of the world? Brothers, this is a good thing to be reminded of on the day of your baptism. You've already become a fool in the eyes of of this world by putting your trust in Jesus. 
But now, you are publicly picking sides. You're crossing a line. And your troubles in this world and with the people of this age will only intensify. The battle will rage hard as the world seeks to conform you to its passions and desires and you must seek to put those desires to death in the power of the Spirit. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand the enemy. And remember through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. If you're not a Christian, well, friend, we want you to seriously consider what God says to you in His Word. And He says that your wisdom, your striving cannot save you. It will only condemn you before a holy God because you have refused to be instructed by Him. So don't be wise in your own eyes. Turn away from your rebellion. Turn away from your cultural ways of thinking and your traditions and come to Christ. Put your trust in the one who became foolish so that you can become truly wise. Put your trust in Him and you will have eternal life. Beloved, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And Paul points us to two passages uh, in the Old Testament to make his point. So look at verses 19 to 20. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The first quotation comes from Job 5.13. And it teaches us that no matter how wise in this age someone thinks they are, they are no match for God. God is able to frustrate the plans of these people. The very intelligence of the wicked will turn out to be their undoing. Brothers and sisters, remember that when you are suffering for righteousness' sake. Remember that when it seems like the wicked are prospering. You know, Asaph thought that. Psalm 73, verse 3. Asaph writes, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he even wondered, have I kept my heart clean in vain? Like, what is the point of holiness? And what Asaph needed was to have his eyes opened to see things from the vantage point of God's wisdom. And then he attended corporate worship. And he was reminded of what the end of these people would be. That the wicked may have been confident, but their end was soon drawing near. And so Asaph comes to that conclusion that we're all familiar with. Psalm 73, 26 to 28. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. 
The next quotation comes from Psalm 94, verse 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, empty. Means that it'll come to nothing. Brothers and sisters, I want you to note something here. You've all heard Psalm 94 this afternoon as it was read to you earlier. In Psalm 94, the psalmist is crying out to God saying, Oh Lord, how long will the wicked prosper? How long will they boast? How long will they afflict your people? And we are reminded of this truth about God. He knows the thoughts of the wicked, but that, that they are but a breath. He's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so he says that they are futile. The word knows, the Lord knows, doesn't mean the same thing that it does for us. Because God is the subject of that word. In Amos 3, 2, when God says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. It doesn't mean that God had no knowledge of the existence of other nations. When he said, you alone have I known. No, it means that he chose them. That's what he means by knows. When he says he knows the thoughts of the wise, they are futile. It means, he, it means that he has ordained them. He has willed them to come to nothing. Nothing can thwart his omnipotent will. Friends, do you know what that means? This means that there is 0% chance of the wisdom of this world succeeding in anything. So don't for a moment think, oh, it's okay for me to think culturally about this issue here because maybe it won't burn up on the last day. No, it's going to become toast. Be a fool for Christ. Wear it as a badge of honor. We ought to say with Henry Francis Light who wrote, Jesus, I my cross have taken. We ought to say with him, let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them, untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love and might, Foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. Friends, therefore we must not build the church with cultural wisdom. We ought to be willing to look like fools in the eyes of the world if we are going to have unity and love and holiness flourish in the church. So be prepared. Be prepared to say foolish things like only men are called to be pastors. Be prepared to say foolish things in the eyes of the world that homosexuality is a sin. Be prepared to say that heterosexual adultery is a sin. That husbands are called to lead and love their wives self-sacrificially and wives are called to submit and respect their husbands. Be prepared to say that Christians are to marry only in the Lord. Be prepared to say that God has designed our sanctification to be a community project that we need one another if we are going to make it to heaven. 
you have to be prepared to say a lot of foolish things like that and be mocked for it. Beloved, God will bring the wisdom of this world to nothing. So learn to evaluate your leaders through the lens of the gospel and scripture. And for the Corinthians, this meant abandoning their divisions, their factions, and becoming unified in their thinking. They needed to remember who they were in Christ. And that brings us to our third and final point. Remember your corporate identity in Christ. Look at verse 21. So let no one boast in men. This is how he applies God's wisdom. All that he has explained thus far, this is how he brings it to bear specifically on the situation in Corinth. Do not boast in men. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, he says, don't be puffed up in favor of one against another. This is his call to unity, much like he has already said in 1 Corinthians 1.10. I want you to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. But here's the reason why it's futile to boast in men. Look at verses 21 to 23. For all things are yours. And when he says yours, he's referring to the church. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Church, don't boast in men. Don't divide over your leaders for all things are yours. You don't belong to men. They are yours. They are yours in this sense that they serve you, the church. They are ministers. They are servants of the body of Christ. So let the wisdom of God shape and inform how you think. Remember who you are. You are not individuals who need to conform to the membership of the world. No, you are already a member of the body of Christ. Your identity is a corporate one. And in light of the gospel of Christ and Him crucified, learn to see how everything relates to you as the church. This is why I don't like the term singles. You know, we say we have singles. We're usually referring to unmarried people. You know, the, as though they are these poor orphans floating around in midair. They're single, like a single shot of espresso. You're somebody's son. You're someone's daughter. You have brothers and sisters in this congregation. You're not single. You're unmarried. Think of yourself in relationship to the church. We can avoid so many heartaches if we only remember our identity in Christ and remember it rightly. Whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, Paul says they are ministering to you for your benefit, for the benefit of God's blood-bought church. All things are yours. And then he also adds, the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. This sounds very much like Romans 8.28, doesn't it? 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And then he says this in Romans 8, 38, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, it's the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he getting at here? Every one of those things that he's mentioned, the world, life, death, present, the future, those are the very things that the wise in this age are captivated by and are often enslaved to. And Paul is saying, God is working all of those things for your eternal good, for the good of His church. No matter how the world may mock you in its present form, remember the world is passing away, and one day you will inherit the earth. You will be an heir of the world, Romans 4.13, because you are in Christ. In Him you possess everything by virtue of His Lordship. You are the church, and the church is Christ's, and Christ is God's. Now when he says Christ is God's, this does not mean that Christ is lesser than God. No, it means that he accomplished everything that God gave him to do. He served God's perfect purposes for our salvation. And one day he will come back and defeat all his enemies so that everything will be subject to God. Friends, in life, in death, in present, or the future, in all these things, we are more than conquerors in Christ. You may not have much in this age, but in Christ you possess everything. So don't envy the world. Don't envy the world and its wisdom. I love how Doug Wilson describes the foolishness of trusting in the wisdom of the world when all things are yours. He writes, a king on a balcony of his palace does not look down on the street below in order to envy the crow that struts in the gutter. Friends, cultural wisdom has no place in the church of God. It's just bad building material that we need to discard no matter how shiny or practical or appealing it may look. But if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Boast in Him alone and rejoice in your standing as members of His body, as sons and daughters of the King. You possess everything. Everything. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at Your grace of how You have called us to be joint heirs with Your Son. Oh Lord, teach us not to rely on our own understanding or even what feels culturally comfortable to us. 
but to remember who we are in Christ Jesus and walk in the wisdom of your word. Hold fast to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.